0: So turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. Oh, they also have stickers out there of our, of our topic for today, uh, Radiant Peace Rooted in Confident Expectation. You can put that on your motorcycle helmet. There you go. Uh, we talked last week about the fact that as we think about the future, we see the future of our community being sort of grounded in these four pillars. One of them is uh, radiant peace rooted in confident expectation. That's what we'll talk about this morning. Next week, we're going to talk about revolutionary kindness rooted in humble solidarity. In three weeks or two weeks from now, we'll talk about uh, prophetic engagement rooted in demonstrable faith and then uh, On the fourth week, we're going to talk about unforced appeal rooted in unblushing oddity. But for our purposes this morning, uh, there were a lot of texts in the Bible that we could look at to sort of get this idea of what confident expectation in the people of Christ how it radiates peace into the community and into the lives of one another. There's lots of places we could look. I chose to use Philippians chapter 1 because there's, it's sort of a great encapsulation of this whole idea. In Philippians chapter 1, we see Paul imprisoned in Rome. And Paul is not confident about exactly what the future is going to look like for him. He has some idea, but he's not confident in what the path will look like. I remember uh, when I was in jail, um, there was a... Uh, Billy wanted me to tell you that I was, he uh, wanted me to start this by saying the first time I was arrested. I'm not gonna say the first time I was arrested. I'm gonna say the only time I was arrested, uh, I remember uh, being arrested with my friends. I was a freshman in high school. And um, I'm, not, I'm not gonna tell you what I got arrested for because we, you're gonna have to take me out to dinner if you wanna know that story. So, uh, But when I was a freshman in high school, I got arrested for the only time. We got taken to jail, fingerprinted. They did the photograph thing, the whole deal. And uh, and then I get my phone call, right? I go, to call, I go to call my mom. It's one in the morning. By the time we got processed and ended up in the cell, it's one in the morning. At the time, I was only allowed to be out past midnight if I was at the movie. So if I was at a movie that started at like 11, I was allowed to be out past midnight. Otherwise, I had to be home by midnight. So I call my mom at one in the morning. She answers the phone, hello? I said, hey, mom, guess where I am? And she goes, at the movies? And I was like, nope, guess again. And she's like, I don't know. Where are you? And I said, I'm in jail. You know, and she's like, Oh no. And I said, Hey, I I need you to come and get me. You know, I need you to come and pick me up. They're done processing me so you can come and pick me up. And she's like, is there an officer there? And I was like, yeah, they're everywhere. She goes, let me talk to him. So I'm like, uh, okay. So I'm like, she wants to talk to you. So I hand the phone to the police officer. And this is the way my side of the conversation goes. I hear the police officer say, hello. Yes, ma'am. Yes, he did. Yes, he will, but, but not right, that'll be up to a judge. Yes, ma'am. Well, if you, if you decided to leave him here overnight, and I'm like, what, no, what? You know, Give me the phone back. He goes, if you decide to leave him here overnight, we'd have to put him into juvenile detention, which means I'd have to call for the van. They'd process him into juvie. And once we process him into juvie, there'd be a $350 fee. And then you couldn't pick him up until 24 hours later. Uh, but if that's what you, no, oh, she says she'll be here in 15 minutes, right? She hung out the phone. <laughs> And it made me kind of panic because I, I didn't want to be in jail. And this was like a nice jail. I was in Glendale, Arizona. It wasn't like I was being threatened at all. But I just, you like when you're in jail, you just want to get out of jail, right? You don't want to be there anymore. It's incredible to me. Uh, by the way, I, look, I know you're going to be distracted by that story the whole time I'm talking. So I'll give you, a, I'll just give you a little info. I was arrested for building a bomb. Okay, so when you're in jail, when you're in jail, <laughs> you're in jail uh, you want to get out. So it's kind of astounding in the life of Paul, I'm getting that dinner. You're going to buy me that dinner. Just, just wait for it. Uh, when, you, when you're in jail, it's astounding that what Paul writes is not a thing that says, Hey, Church of Philippi, I love you. I miss you. I'm excited about the things I've heard about you. Also, could you come and get me out of jail, right? Right? He doesn't say to them, hey, would you be praying that, you know, God supernaturally opens the door, which God had done for him before, that God sort of gets me out of this predicament of this circumstance? I want you to listen to the confident expectation that radiates peace in the position that Paul's in, even though it's a terrible position. He says, starting in verse 12, Philippians 1.12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, What has happened is that he's been in jail, he's appealed it several times, he's been in a shipwreck, he's been flogged, he's been accused, now he's in Rome under house arrest, and he doesn't know what the future looks like. But he takes the time to say, I want you to know that all of this that's happened to me, all of this gross stuff has happened to advance the gospel. Whatever else you might be thinking, whatever distress you might be in, whatever fear you might have about me or my future, I want you to know that I see things clearly, and I know that what occurred, happened that the gospel would go forth he says i want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for christ my imprisonment is for christ it's amazing his heart in this thing he says this is happening for jesus Most of the brothers, verse 14, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. because the circumstances that have brought me to this place have happened to advance the gospel everybody around me from the guards to everybody else they understand that my imprisonment is about Jesus and there are people who've been emboldened by hearing my story and they're proclaiming Jesus he goes yeah I know that there are people out there proclaiming Jesus for selfish reasons some of them see my absence as an opportunity to kind of step up and maybe be the next Paul or to be you know sort of make a name for themselves he goes I get that there are people proclaiming the gospel for false false and selfish reasons, but let me tell you, I'm just celebrating today because I don't care why the gospel is presented. I'm just stoked the gospel's being presented, right? He goes on to say, he says, I'm rejoicing. Look at this in verse 18. Excuse me. He says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Oh, okay. There it is. There it is. He goes, oh, look, I know that I'm going to, I'm going to be delivered. Well, it's interesting Because in this context, that word delivered is the same word that means salvation. He says, I know that I will be saved or I will be rescued. And you go, okay, so so Paul has joy and he can say all this is advancing the gospel and it's all for Christ because somehow God has sort of supernaturally revealed to him that he's about to get out of jail. You know, it's all going to turn out good, right? But that isn't what Paul says. He says, I have joy and I rejoice because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. And then he describes how that deliverance or that salvation, that rescue will occur. He says, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will all turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he goes, here's the deal. He goes, I I feel joy. I feel excited. I have this confident expectation that God is going to be glorified in me through my rescue. Despite the fact that that rescue might happen in one of two ways. It's either going to happen through me living or it's going to happen through me dying. Here's, Here's what we learn about Paul. Paul has an eager expectation and hope. He has an absolute, by the way, hope in the, in the Bible. When we talk about hope in the Bible terms, we're not talking about a wish. When we talk about hope, we go, oh, I really hope I get to go to Disneyland or whatever. That's not what he means. He's not wishing. Hope is, again, a confident expectation. So he says, I, I expect and am confident that this will turn out for my rescue, for my salvation. And it's gonna happen one way or another. God will be glorified in me either through my life or through my death. That's a very different perspective than I think many of us take. As we start looking at this first pillar and we recognize that in order for us as a family and as a congregation to radiate peace in a world that has no peace, in a world that's full of anxiety and fear and stress and fighting and arguments and whatever, for us to radiate peace, we've got to have this confident expectation. And it isn't necessarily a confident expectation that everything will go the way we say it will or maybe even the way we want it to. But it's a confident expectation in the fact that God's purposes cannot be thwarted. That he is in control, that he is good, that he will glorify himself. And we find rest and confidence in allowing ourselves to not worry about our plan, or our purpose, or our goals. I think there are many of us who sort of hope that God will just do the things we're telling him to do, the way we're telling him to do I think for many of us, we were writing this letter We would say, hey, Church of Philippi, I'm hoping that you will pray uh, that I will in no way be ashamed, but instead that I will be honored, right? That I'll be let out of jail and people will see who I am and that I, I was a very good guy in jail and I wrote some letters and I did some other things and that all of my appeals have been worthwhile. I'm praying that I will be delivered and that I will be honored. That isn't what Paul prays. He doesn't say, I'm praying that I will not be ashamed and that I will be honored, he says, I'm praying that I will not be ashamed, right, that I won't be embarrassed or humiliated, that I won't be ashamed, and that Christ will be honored. Again, that's a very different approach than most Americans take. We're not super interested in the honor of others. Americans tend to be interested in serving ourselves, in honoring ourselves, and doing whatever we can to increase our position, and our power, and our influence, he goes, look, I'm just hoping that I don't embarrass myself, I don't, uh, that I'm not ashamed. Instead, I have this expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but rather that God will be honored in my body, regardless of what happens to that body. You see, Paul is confident. He's confident in the destination, even though he is unsure about the route to the destination. Does that make sense? He doesn't know how he's going to get there. He just knows God's going to glorify himself one way or another. But Paul's goal is the glory of God. Paul's goal is to advance the gospel. Paul's goal is that all things would be for Christ, including his imprisonment. For you and I, as we think about what it means to be a church or a family with confident expectation, it has to be a confident expectation, not in the fact that things will turn out the way we would do it if we were God, but rather that things will turn out the way that God wants it because he is God and we're not. And God has made us a lot of promises. There are a lot of things that we can put our confidence in. I'm I'm not going to read them all to you because that would take all month, but I'm going to hit you with a couple of highlights, some things that will be familiar to you. It's worth noting that many of these promises were articulated by the Spirit of God through Paul, right? So when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, he's got some of these these promises in himself. John 10.27, which we studied not too long ago, Jesus himself says in John 10.27, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. We have the promise, not only of eternal life, but the promise, you and I as followers of Christ, that we will never be lost, that he will in no way lose those that the Father has given him. We find security and confidence in the promise of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, at the end of an incredible chapter about the work of Christ, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-seven, Paul says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the promise of a victorious life, not, not in and of ourselves, not in our own efforts, but through the Lord Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul says about something Jesus said to him. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul says, look, Jesus has told me that his grace is enough. His grace is all I need. It will satisfy me. It is sufficient so that even in my weakness, even in my frailty, even in my sickness or my infirmity, God will be glorified because that's who he is. He's like, so I'm not embarrassed about my infirmity. I'm not embarrassed about my weakness. No, that's that's an opportunity for God. There's a promise that God has made to us about his grace. Romans 8, 28, probably familiar. It says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now that's a verse that can be taken out of context. But the promise there is that when we are living according to the purpose of God, by the way, I don't know if you've thought about what the purpose of God is. Right? We talk a lot about the purpose of man the Westminster Confession sort of summarizes it by saying that the chief end of man or the purpose of man is to glorify God, to worship him, and to enjoy a relationship with him forever. But, but what you might not have thought about is that the purpose of God is the very same thing. He has the very same purpose we do. The purpose of God is to glorify himself and to enjoy himself forever. And that, that might feel egotistical. Like if I said, hey, the purpose of Darren is to glorify Darren, you'd be like, this guy's a jerk, Right. With God, it is not prideful, not in a sinful way, because there is no one more worthy than God. So for him to glorify himself is absolutely appropriate. For God to be self-centered makes all the sense in the world because he isn't a created being like us. Self-centeredness in us is wrong. In God, for him to be focused on himself and glorifying himself is absolutely appropriate because he is God and there is no other. So when we are aligned with the purpose of God, it says in this verse in Romans chapter 8, when we are aligned with the purpose of God and we love him, everything works out for good. The definition of good is determined by God, not us, right? He's the one who determines what what is good, and it's according to his purpose. What is good is what glorifies him. We look at a, a passage like Philippians 4.19, similarly, It says in Philippians 4.19, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God will provide what we need. Now we might differentiate with him or have a difference of opinion about what we consider a need versus what he thinks of as a need, but God will provide, God will redeem, God will give us everlasting life. He will never lose us, right? He is with us. I think about Matthew 28, right, in the Great Commission where he says, I have all the power. And in verse 20 he says, and lo, I'll be with you always. We got a lot of promises. Paul, rooted in the promises of God, even in the midst of prison, even in not knowing whether he will live or die, can say this has happened to advance the gospel. And my hope, my expectation is God's going to glorify himself in my body either way. Now, he does tell us a little bit about his preference, and this is interesting. Look at verse, uh, back to to Philippians chapter one. In Philippians chapter one, verse, uh, look at verse 20. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or death. For to me, to live is Christ to die is gain. What's he giving? He's giving us a glimpse of his preference and he goes on to articulate that. He says, if I'm to live for the flesh, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account convinced of this I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again he goes if I'm honest with you God is going to glorify himself in my life either way I'm not going to be ashamed but Christ will be honored whether I live or die and I find peace in that I have a confident expectation that God's purpose will be fulfilled in my life even though I don't know the path but if you want to know my preference he goes to be honest with you I'd kind of rather die and go be with Jesus. No offense. He's like, I get that if I live, it will mean fruitful labor. It will mean that I'll continue to invest in, in these churches for their progress in the faith and their increased joy. And that would be great. I, can, I know that people need that. But to be honest, I'd rather go be with Jesus. No offense, right? It's nice being with you all, but he's better than you, right? Right? I'd rather go there. I love the fact that Paul articulates his preference and then immediately subjects his preference to the will of God. It's not wrong to have preferences, by the way, right? We all have preferences. You all have things you like better than others, right? It's not wrong to have preferences or to have tastes. What's wrong is when your preferences and your tastes are more important than the purposes of God. He goes, I want to go to heaven. I want to die. For me, to die is gain, I think that God's purpose is for me to remain for your progress and your joy. You see, Paul doesn't just have this confident expectation in himself. There is a danger when we start talking about confident expectation. And over the next few years, we're gonna be working really hard to make sure that each and every person who calls this church their home, each and every one of us who are family members here, that we have a confident expectation, not rooted in our own sort of conversations with each other, but rooted in God's word and in his promises, in the character and the reality of who God is. We're going to do that by sort of redoubling our efforts to make sure that the teaching across the board is sound and healthy, right? That in every context, whether it be in this room or any other room where God's word is being taught, that it's being done to the glory of God and it's being done accurately. with sound doctrine and good theology, we're going to be working hard on that. We're going to be working hard in the days ahead to make sure that our staff understand those core values, Right, that they understand that Jesus is core. That, that God's word is our code of conduct. That our life is about revealing Christ. As he's revealed to us and revealed in us, then he becomes revealed by us. All of these core values, you can find them in the book you're going to read later, right? All these core values that they'd be rooted in our staff... So that then it would trickle out into our volunteers and then it would trickle from them out into the family at large. And then by extension, then that confident expectation radiates out into our city. But it isn't just so that we can feel confident in and of ourselves. We do a think well lecture like we did last week. And the goal of a think well lecture is to get people to think about our culture, to think about our environment and to go, how is God's purpose served in the midst of this how would God answer this question? How does this word answer this question? Why do we do that? Not just so that we'll have the answers, but so that that truth then radiates out of us, that peace radiates out of us into the lives of others. Paul isn't just holding on to this confidence. He wants it to extend. In fact, he says in the, very, in, in the first verse we read today, verse 12, he says, I'm writing this, brothers, so that you will know all this stuff happened for the advance of the gospel. He wants us to know. He says, as a result of his life and imprisonment, all the imperial guard and everyone else knows that this is for Christ. That there are people who've been emboldened in the faith. And at the end of the section, we'll look at it in a second, at the end of the section, he gives us a very strategic way in which we also are to radiate that peace because it isn't just about him feeling peaceful in and of himself. Sometimes when we have a confident expectation, the way in which it it manifests in our lives is to exclude ourselves. We want to sort of run away from community. We want to go, yeah, you know, I feel confident about God glorifying self in my life. I feel confident about his power and his purpose. And you know what, I'm just going to hunker down and sort of try and weather the storm of the world in which I live. And it creates in us sort of a a retreat from the world. We have this confident expectation and so we distance or disconnect from our neighbors and from our city. That isn't what Paul has done here. The confident expectation that he has produces in him a peace not just that he holds but that radiates into the life of other people. One of the scariest things that ever happened to my family and I in, uh, in January of 2001 we were returning, we were living at Hume Lake, which has snow, tons of the year. And I, we bought a Nissan Xterra, which is a four-wheel drive deal. And I thought, I thought, I grew up in Arizona, so I never, I never drove in snow. I thought if you had a four-wheel drive, you can just kind of go wherever you want. You turn it on and then just drive. I've learned uh, that was ignorant. Um, what you realize when you live in the snow is that even with a four-wheel drive, sometimes the snow and the ice, they just take you and they throw you off the road I don't know they just you just can't control it so we're driving home from Christmas vacation and uh, we're, the snow it's like one of these really heavy snows in fact if you know the Central Valley the snow is falling in Reedley and in Dinube, it's falling all the way down where the orchards are we start to drive up the road it's an hour and a half up to Hume Lake and we're driving up this two lane road on the side of a mountain and I'm doing everything I can the snow is falling so heavy you can barely see there's no cars on the road it's like 10 30 at night and uh And all of a sudden, my car starts to fishtail. I do the thing where you're supposed to turn into the curve. I did what I think I was supposed to do. But instead, we do like a full donut. In the middle of the road, we do like a full, uh, you know, 360. And then the front of our Nissan Xterra goes off the road into a bush and stalls out. And, uh... So we got our newborn son in the back. He's like six months old and my wife in the car. It's pitch black outside. I get out of the car to see if I can maybe push the truck back on the road and when I get out of the car and I look, I realize that our Nissan is not uh, in a bush but it's actually stuck in the top of a tree. The road drops off on this. It's like a cliff and there's a tree growing up and our truck is basically off the road. The front two tires are in the top of a tree suspended over a drop and so I'm like, Terrified, right? What are we gonna? So I look at my wife. I am like, very slowly and carefully, we got to get the baby out of the car, and we need to move away from this truck because it could topple into this ravine at any time. So we get the baby. Now we're standing out in the middle of the snowy road in the pitch black at ten thirty at night. And honestly, I just started crying, like I didn't know what to do. We start we start walking down the hill because I think, well, I don't want to walk up the. I am gonna even if I, you know, die of you know freezing. At least I am walking towards Fresno, which is just slightly better than death, right? So, so we start walking down the hill in a snowstorm, carrying our one-year-old, like not even one-year-old, in a baby carrier, and I'm crying. Shannon's trying to be tough for both of us, whatever. And uh, all of a sudden, all of a sudden, there's a car that comes around the road, and the headlights are in our eyes. We kind of get out of the way, and this guy pulls up, and it's the mechanic from Hume. And he rolls down his window, and he goes, what do you guys?" doing out here walking around? And I'm just like, <laughs> he's like, oh, what's going on? I'm like, oh, we we almost died. I don't know. Can I, can I just put my baby in your truck? You know, and uh, he goes, I got a winch on the front of the truck. I'll pull you off, off the tree and we'll get you back on the road, no problem. So he, he hooks us up, he winches the truck, he pulls it back on the road, but I know he's made a mistake because he winches it back on the road. He winches it with the front of the truck pointing up to Hume Lake. I don't want to go to Hume Lake anymore, right? I want to leave Hume Lake and never go back. And so I'm like, um, could you turn the truck around for us? Because we just want to go to Fres, yes. You know, what? I just want to go down to... And uh, he goes, nope you don't live in Fresno, you live at Hume Lake, we're going to Hume Lake. And I was like, I, I don't want to go to Hume Lake, it's too scary, I, I'm, I don't want my baby to die, I just want to go down to the hill, you know? And he's like, no, you're gonna follow me. He goes, you're gonna follow me. He's like, you're gonna get behind me and you're gonna drive in my tire tracks and we're gonna go back, you're gonna sleep in your own bed tonight. And I was like, I don't, I really don't, I don't feel good about that. He goes, you don't have to feel good about it because I do. He's like, because I feel good about it. He's like, you can allow my confidence to give you confidence. What's happening there? He, he radiated peace into my life. Not peace that I had in and of myself, but peace that he had right? And th- so we did, we got in the- I mean, I'm white knuckled on the steering wheel and we followed him all the way home. It's about an hour, probably it was like two hour drive on that snowy road, but we got back to our house that night, right? Back up the hill. That's what Paul's trying to do here. He's not just saying, I have peace, not just I have a confident expectation in who God is, but I want you to have that as well. In the time that we have remaining, I just want you to see five quick ways in which he illustrates this in our lives. Look at, uh, look at verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Two things I want you to see in verse 27. The first one is, he calls us to a different kind of character. He calls us to a different kind of character. He says, if, if you have this confident expectation, then you will live a life worthy of the gospel. A life worthy of the gospel. The, the idea there, that, that idea worthy of the gospel, the Greek word is politumai, and the, and the Greek word basically is the root word for like politicism or political activity. What he's saying is that your citizenship should change. The way in which you live in the world should change because of your confidence in this God. Because you see my confidence, then you should live differently in, in the world. As, as the community at Fullerton Free, you and I, we, it's not enough for us to come here on Sunday and go, yeah, we believe in the promises of God. You and I, we need to be involved in our, in our local government. We need to be involved with our law enforcement. We need to be involved in local schools. We need to be involved in our neighborhoods. We need to be involved in our local businesses. Why? Why? so that we can live a life worthy of the gospel, a life that puts Jesus on display. There's not much need for putting Jesus on display in this room to one another. That's just preaching to the choir. He says, I want you to see this confident expectation so that your citizenship will change. It's vital for us to recognize that citizenship is a key part of discipleship. God calls us to make a difference in the city in which we live. Not only our character will change, but he also talks about their connectedness. He says, whether I come and see you or am absent, that I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. For what it's worth, Paul never talks about the spirit um, in any other way than referring to the the Holy Spirit. So I'm not sure why ESV decided not to capitalize it here. The idea here is he says that empowered by the Spirit, you all would be a loving community, united in Christ, living like Him, right? United in sacrifice and living like Christ for the glory of God. That there would be this connectedness that we'd be standing and striving shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel. I think sometimes what happens in our community is we all sort of gather here on a Sunday morning for 35 minutes or an hour or whatever it is, and then we scatter to the four winds. And we're not connected, striving shoulder to shoulder for the faith of the gospel. We're getting ready to start a thing again on September 3rd called Prayer Somewhere. It's a a prayer initiative that I started last year. I lead a a prayer meeting for our church every week in a different location. It moves around. I've been doing that uh, since last September, and we're starting it again this week. Um, We we are a church with thousands of people who attend on Sunday. You know how many people show up to pray, shoulder to shoulder, striving for the faith of the gospel on a regular basis? You know my average attendance is at Prayer Somewhere? Seven people. And two of them are staff. Well, three, including me. I don't say that to shame you. I say there's something wrong with our connectedness. There's something wrong with our dependence on God. And I'm I'm not suggesting that you're not praying at your kitchen counters or in your small groups or your life groups. I'm sure you are. But when a church our size has opportunities to pray, to seek the face of God, to lift up our requests to him, to listen for his voice and to seek him, and we get seven people to show up on a regular basis, that's not great, that's not great. It, it, It doesn't mean it can't change, but it's indicative of an unhealth that we need to see change as our confident expectation produces radiant peace. He says your character will change, your connectedness will change. Look at verse 28. He says, you'll be striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. The third thing that he talks about here that would, that would be radiating out of us is confidence. Confidence confidence, that we would have this confidence that we wouldn't be threatened or thwarted by those who would oppose us, those who would say the Bible is rubbish, or who would say the church has no point, or who would say that the things we see in the Bible are not true, or whatever. There are all kinds of places we'll face opposition, and Paul says if you have this confident expectation in who Christ is, right, then what that will produce in you is this radiant peace that that creates this confidence in you, where you won't be scared or terrified by those who would oppose you. So there's a confidence there. Not only that, there is a clarity for those who oppose. Also in 28, he says, you wouldn't be frightened in anything by your opponents, and this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The fourth thing I want you to see here is clarity. It brings clarity to those who would oppose us, clarity to those who would dismiss God or dismiss the scriptures or dismiss our faith in general it brings clarity to them you know it's funny the world is looking for peace but what the world calls peace is not peace right it's, it's so weird worldly peace if you could even call it that is bonkers there is no way to have shalom apart from God right shalom only comes in god but our world is striving so hard and we and we sort of give this sense of like you can find peace in the stuff you do and the stuff you buy right that's what our world is saying to us it's all about what you own or what you have or what you're doing go to another yoga class get in better shape right go on a better vacation buy a better car whatever and you'll you'll find some sense of wellness and wholeness but how long does that last you got to take another yoga class tomorrow, right? you gotta, you got to jog on the jogger thing again. I don't, I don't know what those things are called because I clearly don't run on them. But, but we're having to perpetually do that. Why? Because it doesn't bring peace. It doesn't bring shalom. And what he's saying here is that when we're striving shoulder to shoulder in connectedness with a different kind of character, right? When we are confident in the promises of God and courageous, Right? then what happens is it puts on display the fact that the path the rest of the world is on leads to destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a way that seems right to mankind, but the end or the result of that path is death. What this passage isn't saying is that when we live with confidence, that everybody else is going to know that they're damned by God. That's not what it's saying. No, it heightens their awareness of the path, that if they have not put their faith in Christ, they are condemned already. That the route they're on leads to destruction and that of God. So we have an opportunity to clarify for people that there is a way to live that brings reconciliation to God, that brings confidence, that brings shalom or peace. So there's character, there's connectedness, there's confidence, there's clarity, and last, there's conformity. He says in verse uh, 29 and 30, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, And now here that I still have, Paul says, hey, when you're suffering or when you're facing opposition or when when you're feeling anxious or worried or fearful, and instead you can remember the promises of our God, the character of our God. You see, for us, peace is not rooted in what you have or what you do. It's rooted in what you know, or more importantly, it's rooted in who you know and who you are. Do you know the God of the universe? Do you know this Jesus who came and took our sin upon himself, died in our place, gives us eternal life, protects us, provides, is working all things for the good according to his purpose? Do you know this Jesus? That's where peace comes from. It's about who we know and who we are. He makes us new, He calls us his sons and daughters. That's not a peace you have to come back to again and again and again for another fix. It's a true and lasting peace. It's the peace of Jesus. Jesus says in John 15, I've said all these things so that my joy will be in you and that your joy will be full. Jesus wants us to have this peace, right? And so the last thing here, the last point I want you to see is that when we enter into suffering, we have the opportunity to participate in the suffering of Christ. There's a conformity to the image of Christ who also suffered, Paul says here to the church at Philippi, when you're suffering, you're entering into the same kind of suffering that I've felt. But what Paul's pointing at is the fact that not only has he suffered, the the suffering of Paul is reminiscent or revelatory of the suffering of Christ. Right? That we put the suffering and the peace of Christ on display when we enter in solidarity into his suffering. That's why 1 Peter chapter 2 says, in 1 Peter chapter 2, 21, it says, "...for to this you have been called." Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. How did Jesus face suffering? How did he face what would have made other men anxious and fearful and worried and doubtful? He did it by entrusting himself to him who judges justly entrusting himself to him who judges justly, recognizing that God was in control. He didn't revile in return. He didn't threaten when he was threatened. He was at peace because he had entrusted his life to God who is just and holy and good. The same thing is true for us. When we go through difficulty, when we live in a world full of anxiety and fear and doubt and frustration and anger and fighting, and we have the ability to have this confident expectation. What is confident expectation? It's entrusting ourselves to him who judges justly. When we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly, our lives put on display the character of Christ. Our lives put on display the character of the Apostle Paul who was putting on the character of Christ. And then Christ is revealed to us, he's revealed in us, and he's revealed by us. I, uh, I took my motorcycle, uh, my motorcycle driver's exam this week, my M1 exam, not to freak you. I mean, I'm trying to establish I'm really a rebel. You guys getting that? I went to jail. I took a motorcycle test this week. I failed it twice. I passed it the third time. One of the interesting things on the motorcycle test is it says uh, at night, one of the ways to see obstacles in the road is to, is to utilize the lights of the cars in front of you. You see their headlights that shine a lot further than your, than your light might on your bike or your scooter or whatever. And so you can tell when there's obstacles further down the road by looking at the lights of another vehicle. I, I really, I was struck by it. I've been preparing this message and I was struck by the fact that our peace shines a light further into the darkness than those who are in the darkness behind us, right? We can't give them peace. We can't give people the peace of Christ. All we can do is introduce them To Christ, who according to Colossians 1, makes peace by the blood of his cross, right? He makes peace between us and God, and and in that he reconciles us also to one another. Jesus is the one who makes peace. Jesus is the one who puts peace on offer. But when we put our expectation in him, there is a peace that radiates out of us, that casts a light into the darkness, that our neighbors and friends and coworkers and families, that they can navigate in some ways and become hungry for the peace that only Jesus offers. We want to be a church, a family, brothers and sisters who have radiant peace, rippling out into our world, rooted in a confident expectation, not in what we have or what we've done, but a confident expectation in who he is and what he said. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us a a remembrance of your faithfulness, a remembrance of your promises the ability to rest in the fact that we know the absolute destination and the outcome of our lives even though we may not know what the path to that destination looks like. And God, it is our eager expectation and hope that we will not be ashamed but that you, Lord Jesus, will be glorified in our bodies either by life or by death and that that confidence in you will radiate out through us into the lives of those who have no shalom, who have no peace, that they would be drawn to you and the peace that only you give. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.